In the latest episode of the Next Gen and Lodging podcast, host Chris Henry reconnects with old friends Maxwell Terhagen and Harrison Hinton Harden to talk about shifting food and beverage trends in hospitality. Terhagen is now executive chef at Duck and Waffle in London and previously led menus for hotel operator Soho House. Hinton Harden, a guest services manager at Pacifica Hotels, has a background in and passion for wine. Thanks for listening and visit Hotel News Now for the latest industry news every day. Hello, listeners. This is Chris Henry, and we're here back on Next Gen and Lodging. I am really looking forward to this uh, episode because I've got two friends joining us, and I've known one since uh, elementary and middle school, and I've known the other since high school. So it's going to be fun to uh, hear their thoughts. But we have Maxwell Trahagen calling in from uh, London. And then we have Harrison Hinton Harden, who, Harrison, I think you're in LA still. Yes, uh, I am. So gentlemen, it's great to have you both join us. Um, why don't we just briefly start with sort of just a quick background. Um, Max, if you don't mind just giving us a quick uh, roundup on your experience in the F&B scene, and uh, then we'll turn it over to Harrison. Yeah, I. Uh, thanks for having me, by the way. It's, it's nice to see you again, and I'm happy Absolutely. to be here. But uh, um, yeah, I started cooking when I was 17 in Los Angeles in a French restaurant in Santa Monica and knew that I knew that I wanted to be a chef from a very young age and uh, proceeded to go to culinary school after high school, moved to New York to do that and uh, have just kind of ticked along restaurants, pastry kitchens, um, up and down California in Napa, uh, San Mateo, Los Angeles and uh, um, got an opportunity with Soho House to move to London to open a big hotel called The Net over here with 10 F&B outlets within it. And uh, I stayed with them for about six years and and, uh, met my wife. So stayed here and, you know, a year ago opened a independent restaurant with a small group of investors and and then have recently uh, joined a very large restaurant called Duck and Waffle um on the 40th floor of the heron tower open 24 hours a day 365 days a year and and i'm the executive chef over there so it's it's been quite the journey i say duck and waffles quite the landmark as well um you get locals and visitors alike wanting to go there for the views and your great food yeah it's fun it's been a very fun place to work i've been there about seven months now and uh i've really enjoyed it so it's good awesome well harrison why don't you give us a little bit of a background on on yourself so yeah, um, thanks for having me. Um, both Chris and I went to high school together. Um, and I would say I my journey with like wine um, kind of started uh, at Cal Poly, Pomona. Um, there is a big hospitality school there. Um, and I actually studied business in school, um, but I took a few wine, uh, beer and spirits courses as like electives on the side. But um, that definitely piqued my interest um, with wine. And um, I had opportunity to take uh, some courses with the quartermaster SOM. And then um, after graduating, I spent some time overseas working for a nonprofit. uh, And that place happened to be uh, France. And so I had the opportunity to kind of uh, taste more wine and drink more wine and get um, a lot more experience. And then um, during the pandemic, um, I, I felt like, you know, the wine industry 
and just wine culture in general is intimidating and it can be like very stuffy. And so I started our venture out on social media uh, via Instagram, I'm starting on a uh, page called Not A Song, which is like, I, I'm kind of rejecting the stuffiness of, of wine culture that can be present and kind of democratizing um, wine culture uh, so that everybody can feel comfortable and learn more about wine. And so that's kind of how um, I kind of got into wine and, and uh, alcohol beverages and things like that. Very cool. Very cool. Max, I know you mentioned that you uh, this is a busy week for you because you have your new menu rolling out. <clears throat> Can you give us some thought on the process that you're going through right now with menu planning? Because I know in the UK, much like here in the US, inflation has been an issue. Um, how do you take how do you take current economic factors into menu planning and sourcing your uh, raw ingredients? Uh, I mean, it's it, it's definitely challenging. It uh, you know whatever we put on the menu, it, the price is reflective of what we what we pay for it. You know, and we we try to be as fair as possible. Obviously, keeping keeping the cost to the consumer as as low as possible. You know, but if you put a premium ingredient on the menu, it's going to cost more money. And um, you know. In in the best case scenario, we try to source everything as locally as possible within the seasons, you know, and change the menu, give or take four times a year with with specials in and out here as we go. But um, you know, the seasons kind of dictate what what we can put on the menu because it's at its peak and simultaneously, usually the cheapest that you can get it because it's in abundance at the time, you know. So. You know, at, at the restaurant that I'm at right now, because it's such a massive operation and there's so much for planning and, and you know, 12 different menus that have to be written by a woman in, in Los Angeles, everything has to be done, you know, several months in advance, which I'm not used to whatsoever. You know, I'm, I'm used to having a creative idea and, and putting it on the menu the next day, um, which is more fun creatively, but, but this process is teaching me what it's like to to run a, a massive scale operation you know so at present we're changing we're changing the menu next week you know but at present i'm i'm testing dishes that i would like to put on the menu you know four or five six weeks in advance which which is poses challenges because some of the items that i would like to use in six weeks aren't really available so i have to use subpar products at at you know, today, um, knowing that they will be better as as the seasons change, um, you know. So it's it, it's challenging, and I'm wrapping my head around it. It's it's definitely a very different experience to anything that I've done before. So, um, yeah, I hope that kind of answers the question. Yeah, no, it does because I think that's something that's. I mean, I think on the consumer side, especially in hotels and such, you know, food and beverage is, is getting expensive. Um, not that it wasn't before, but it's certainly gone up. And I don't know, Harrison, if on your end with wine, if it's you're starting to see prices get impacted already, or if that's something that you're expecting uh, down the road. Definitely. I mean, we, especially during the pandemic, we have the fires in Napa, uh, you know, and that's definitely reduced the output of a lot of the um, wineries. Um, 
you you see there's like um big shifts in like consumption i guess like who who is drinking wine and what wine is marketed to whom premium sector i mean the, the wine has pretty much the prices have, have remained kind of flat um but we've noticed like increase in like entry level wines have the prices have gone up and so i don't know i feel like um things have probably like remained pretty pretty stable over the past couple of years but inflation is is changing consumer habits i would say and i think that's that's a good segue that i was going to ask for for both of you with the pandemic happening and now inflation happening and people just trying to get back to normal when you're either specking your menus or specking your wine lists do would you say you've seen choices change like are are consumers picking different options um price aside or palettes changing or our taste changing any anything coming out of this sort of crazy couple of years that you're noticing i that's a good question and i don't know that i have an answer for that harrison i'll i'll do that to you for now <laughs> yeah yeah i do so um it's very interesting and in, in the past couple of years what we've seen is that the boomer uh, generation and generations prior to that, they are the largest uh, consumers of wine. And that segment is increasing, although it's at a smaller rate. Um, what's very interesting is that millennials and Gen Z, um, while they're still drinking alcoholic beverages, um, the wine segment is pretty small and they're consuming ready to drink cocktails more, uh, spiked seltzers, uh, spiked cocktails that are like in ready to go formats. Um, and so I've even seen here in LA, um, most restaurants have had to transition from you know, a full wine list or a full wine menu to a hybrid approach. And so you know, back in the day, like we're doing food and wine pairings uh, for everything. So now we're doing cocktail and food pairings, you know? So you'll see wines that, I mean, you'll see menus that are incorporating um, cocktails, wine, um, alternative uh, beverages, like you know, adaptogenics or CBD um, infused uh, things. That's some of the things we're seeing here in LA. So I think, you know, I'm, I'm not in the restaurant industry. So, I mean, I really can't speak to specifics but you know when it comes to like purchasing like lots of wine which has a low shelf life um as opposed to spirits making cocktails i feel like you know the blend is encouraged the blended menu is encouraged especially based on drink drinking habits of different generations and, again, and it also depends on you know what audience your restaurant is geared to um and that'll determine your offerings as well but i do i do see more of a hybrid approach as more, instead of having the more wine focused um, menus, you see a blended menu. People are drinking cocktails with their food and not just wine. Any thoughts on that, Max? Uh, I, I agree 100%. And in the last restaurant, we used to pair or have suggested cocktail pairings with, with our food items. We had a really nice cocktail program. Um, as we do here as well. And um, 
you, you know, I think I think the restaurant that I'm at now is is a little bit of an anomaly because of the location that it is and and you know the the notoriety that it has. You know, people come to spend money at our at our place, and it's I'm I'm not going to say it's it's we have our challenges and and we can see we can definitely see the trend you know immediately after lockdown people were ready to spend money and and yeah. you know there was a big uptick and all the parties that were that were canceled or put on hold you know due to the multiple different lockdowns as soon as we came out everybody was you know flush with savings and 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 spending and now you can see the the purse has been tightened, you know, but simultaneously we are a very touristy destination and a very celebratory destination. So we get a lot of birthdays and, and anniversaries and and our, our lunchtime trade because we're in, you know, the heart of the city is is very much, you know, business meetings. So um, it, it, it's hard to gauge, you know, that particular question, but, um, we can see the trend in the sales, you know, and and as a result of all the increasing costs, we've had to simultaneously increase our costs to to maintain the same, you know, P and Ls at the end of the day. So, yeah, and that's that's interesting. So, thinking back on your Soho House days, and I think you were out at the, if I remember from Instagram, like you were out at the farmhouse um, <clears throat> at one point. Yeah, br- briefly for a couple of months. Um, so when you think back, cause, cause Soho, they do have sort of hotel components at some of their locations, um, yeah. you know, prior to the pandemic and then going through it and now coming out now, are there any, from an operations perspective, any, um, changes or challenges that you guys sort of experienced, but you think that coming out on this back end is more successful? Were there good, like adaptations that you think restaurants should continue to follow? I mean, Soho House definitely adapted massively as a result of the pandemic. You know, here in the UK, obviously we had Brexit and then we had the pandemic and um, we are struggling, as I know is an issue in America as well, to find people that want to do this job anymore. And, And staffing is increasingly the most difficult issue that we face and you know as a whole across the uk there's just a massive shortage of people that are willing to be chefs anymore and it's become so competitive and in the prices that or 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 the wages that that chefs are being paid are so much higher than they ever were before and it's almost like a bubble that feels like it's going to burst because restaurants and, and very good restaurants are struggling to keep up in closing as a result of this problem. Um, you know, and in Soho House, one of the things that they, they saw that writing on the wall and, and they were able to create, you know, what, for one thing that they did, they globalized the menus, you know, to make everything very streamlined. And they wanted to know that when our customer comes to this house or this house or this house, the food is going to be exactly the same. And they did a very good job with that. And, and in order to achieve that in the UK, I think, I, I can't remember at the time, there were, you know, 15 sites in London, something like that. Um, in order to achieve that, they had a massive prep kitchen 
that produced, you know, the base recipes for for everything that they served and would distribute them to the houses. And then, you know, they would be finished in the kitchens, effectively eliminating, you know, a massive part of your team that you needed to have to produce and simultaneously making sure that everybody had the same exact product, driving down costs, you know, giving them a much, much better, better bargaining power for, for, you know, price negotiation. And, um, we don't really have that option being, you know, one restaurant, but, but, uh, you know, a big, a bigger company like that has, has the ability to, to, you know, negotiate on price, you know, arguing for 15 different locations. So. Yeah. And Harrison, how about for you on the wine side? Have you, you know, has, I, I don't follow it close enough, but have, have you seen this, uh, vineyards and wineries come and go right now, or is everybody really still trying to just get product out, you know, fires aside and global warming aside? Um, are they having a human uh, capital crisis as well? You know, um, I'm not sure. I know a lot of wineries are just reducing output to kind of control, you know, whatever issues or constraints that are, are occurring because of inflation and um, the after effects of the pandemic. Um, but as far as like seeing wineries disappear, I wouldn't say so. Um, but I, I do think that they're tightening up to kind of control the, yes. the cost. Yeah, I, I know on our end for the hotel side, uh, much like you're saying, Max, it's been um, really difficult to find good talent and retain good talent. But then also, um, yeah, salaries are sort of somewhat out of control and certain mm-hmm. strange, unrealistic territory. Um, and that's on top of union problems and, and everything else that comes with it. So I, I totally hear uh, your challenges. Are you finding, um, at least in the UK, is a lot is more of your staff right now local or is it still uh, from abroad or what's what kind of challenges are you seeing? I have a team of 41 chefs and uh, I think off the top of my head two of them are english and one is welsh and the rest are you know know, from europe or africa or or central or south america i'm the only i'm the only american um yeah but you know there's probably 25 different nationalities um which is amazing and 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 you know super fun to work with but you know, we're struggling, we're struggling. It's, diff- it's become increasingly difficult for people to get visas here. And uh, yeah, and, and, you know, you don't get a lot of English people that want to do this kind of work it, from my, my perspective. And are you recruiting a lot, just out of curiosity, a lot from culinary schools or are you just looking for- Zero. Z- zero. Oh, okay. Yeah, we're <laughs> just, yeah, yeah, we are- uh, we're just looking, we're looking for, you know, people that have good attitudes and willing to do the job and um, coachable, teachable. Yeah, that's the most important awesome. thing. Yeah. yeah. So let's, talk, yeah. Let's, let's talk about something a little bit more fun. So Harrison, tell me for 2023 and beyond, what are your three wine or beverage trends that you're, that you're following? Okay, so um, the exciting part for me, um, 
I think because of the demographic that's like um, interested in wine or more, they're more focused on health and wellness. Um, we see a lot of interest in uh, no alcohol or low alcohol wines. Um, and, and interesting enough, I think towards the end of this year, it's gonna be required for all wine labels to have nutritional facts, which I think is gonna be kind of a double-edged sword because we're gonna have people who are enlightened by the fact, oh, okay, this has zero calories, or this has this much calories, this much sugar, but then people are gonna be like hyper-focused on ingredients that they don't understand uh, in the winemaking process. But on that note, Max, I was just in London and um, I was at a house party and uh, you would know the name of this better than, because I can't recall it, but it was a no alcohol spirit that people were saying, oh, well, can give you the effects of like you're drinking alcohol, but there's no alcohol in it. And I it guess- gives, It gives you the effects. I've never heard the, of that. Yeah, there, it was in a pink bottle. <laughs> And it was a pink glass sort of Victorian looking bottle. And they said, oh yeah, this is, this is the new thing. Uh, well, I've been sober eight and a half years. So that sounds very interesting to me. You know, yeah, I drink, I drink no alcohol uh, uh, spirits. I, I, I drink seed lip and, and Tanqueray's got a new double zero. And, and there's a couple others that I like, um, but I haven't heard of anything that gives you the effects. Of alcohol. Yeah. It's, it's just uh, you feel like you're drunk, but you did not have any alcohol. So I don't know. <laughs> this is some new trend so okay so that's that's number one what's your number two trend that you're following um and then of course like ready to drink cocktails are like a thing that kind of started during the pandemic but it's still gaining popularity now um and i think the marketing that the the marketing that they're using is is really good because as i mentioned before people are very hyper focused on wellness and so they're like okay try this like cocktail spike this much sugar or zero calories and I think people are drawn to that you know and they go buy their cases of like whatever and um but I also think that people are interested in um wines with a story or wines that are uh, manufactured in a certain way so like you know with biodynamic processes or natural processes, wines with stories. Like, I feel like there's a lot of different um, winemakers um, that I think people are not necessarily interested in, you know, legacy per se. Um, most people are just like, well, what is this offering? What are you doing now um, as a company? And more of the social responsibility, corporate social responsibility. And so you have like companies like Maker Wine, um, they support people of color and uh, women-owned wineries or women-owned wi women winemakers. Um, and in their limited run canned um, wine cases, they highlight the stories of each uh, winemaker, whether they're a person of color or whether uh, um, as a female or if they're female-owned. Um, there's also La Cordia, which is from Saltman Vineyards in Paso. They sell a wine that supports all of their field workers who work in the vineyards. And they actually have a plot that they work uh, solely, that they work on. And all the proceeds from that wine goes to support 
um, their livelihood. And I think the, the founder of Stoltman Vineyards, his goal was if, if I'm going to have a successful business, I'm going to ensure that all, all aspects are successful. So including those who work um, the vineyards, I want them to have a long-term career. I want them working throughout the year. And that was his way of supporting them. And um, so I feel like people appreciate the background or the story behind the wine. And that kind of like drives uh, consumption and purchases. Totally. And Max, what about your three? So trends that you're following right now on, in the food scene? I mean, I think I think some eternal trends that never never leave the food scene are, are seasonality, sustainability, and and trying to source things as as locally as possible. Um, that being said, you know, I, I I like what you said about storytelling. I think storytelling is massive, and and it definitely sells. Um, and it's just it's fu it's fun, and it's fun for the consumer. Um, you know, everybody likes. Everybody likes, you know, the the third generation hand-me-down tiramisu that, you know, Nona taught me. Um, it it tastes better. It always does. Um, but, you know, I think there's I think there's a trend towards towards almost minimalistic cooking, showcasing very high quality things um, in a very simple format. You know, a really nice cut of meat, a really nice sauce nice veg, you know, and, and, and nothing more. Um, I, I see a lot of people in the sustainability front. I think, I think everybody kind of, everything kind of falls into those categories that I, I mentioned before, but, you know, I, I see a lot of, um, things like X dairy cow, you know, basically product that, is no longer usable for its initially intended purpose now being sold and and being served as 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 an amazing product that's you know would have been used or or, or would have gone to waste at one point but but you know chefs i think have to be quite creative in in how how can we turn something that is effectively waste to somebody into a beautiful product and make money from it um, you know, so, so using byproduct and, and treating things simply. And, you know, obviously, obviously veganism has been a massive, massive movement in the last, especially in the last few years. Um, you know, I've coming from California, I've always had an appreciation for, for using lots of veggies and, and showcasing veggies very simply, um, which, which is very different from what we do at this restaurant. We are very meat heavy, um, but I'm slowly trying to incorporate a little bit more light freshness into the menu because I think people really appreciate that and, and uh, you know, want that today. You know, people want to eat veggies. People want to eat a little bit lighter. People want to eat cleaner, you know, and, and, and I could be biased. We're from Southern California, you know, that's, that's, <laughs> very popular there. So, um, and London and, and the UK are, is, is, is different in that way. They like their meat and potatoes. So. And okay. So out of curiosity, three ingredients that are like, maybe more featured or more desired right now by consumers. If you were to say, Hey, look, there's three things that we're trying to incorporate now into our dishes. Um, what would that be? 
I mean, it, I think it's constantly rotating. I think it, it, it really depends on what is in season right now. You know, we're about to go into spring season. We literally just had the first beautiful sunny day of the year. I cycled to work and, and I was thinking in my head, okay, what am I going to put on the menu? We need some light, fresh salads on the menu. And I started coming up with a, you know, a, a baby gem radish and snow pea salad with a, a orange olive oil and citrus agridolce with a whipped goat's cheese and candied sunflower seeds. That's the dish I came up in my head today. And I was like, we need more of that stuff on the menu um, because those things are coming, coming up very soon. Um, you know, so those are three, those are, those are multiple items right there, but but uh, yeah, I'm a cheese lover. So I just asked my pastry chef if he would order me three different cheeses that I, I want to try. And, you know, we, our restaurant is called Duck and Waffle. So we serve a lot of things on waffles. And uh, I'm trying to come up with a, a cheese course that's served on a waffle with really nice honeycomb. And um, yeah, but honestly, we are coming into the best season of the year. Spring and summer by far is the most fun season. California is different. You can kind of almost get most things year round but but here in the uk we are super limited in january february is a tough time to be really creative in in and make beautiful colorful um tasty food that looks amazing on a plate and and uh we're about to come into the best season of the year in in my opinion so i'm i'm really excited to get to use all this really beautiful produce that's that's grown locally or you know in Sp spain or france or italy so what about you harris any three wine varietals that um consumers are starting to look you're trying to source more or want more of uh, yeah you know as as uh, max mentioned we're moving into spring and summer season so it's Things are getting a little bit more brighter, a little bit more fresh. And so I think skin contact wines are going to be uh, in again in the next month or so, or even now. So there are rosés, our orange wines, our rosados. Um, those are always fun. And the cool is like a lot of winemakers have different interpretations of each of those varieties. So I would say skin contact wines, um, also uh, pet nats are going to become, you know, easy drinking, like porch pounder type of wines. Um, and let me see. So we got orange contact, I mean, skin contact, uh, pet nuts, um, and then just lighter. What is, it, what, is it, what is a pet nut? I've never heard of a pet nut. Oh, so pretty much um, it's, it's a wine that is bottled during the initial fermentation process. So during that first stage um, with the sugar still in the bottle. So they bottle it up, uh, the yeast eats at the sugar and creates carbon dioxide. So you get kind of like this light sparkling as opposed to like, you know, with champagne, you use um, already produced wine um, that's steel, you put it in and then you add yeast and, uh, and like a sugar liquor to add the, to start the process again and create the carbon dioxide inside of champagne. So it's just like, um it's just it gets the carbonation from the first step from the initial fermentation for the first step and so it's like a light sometimes funky uh depending on how much um on what yeast is used and how it's processed are you seeing people trying to explore more unique wines as opposed to the normal sort of everyday um standard wines 
Yeah, you know, I think um, people are like kind of shifting away from like the standard cab, uh, cab solve or, or Pinot Noir. And, and the thing is, is, a lot of winemakers are experimenting with different um, grapes, especially because of climate change. You know, a lot of the traditional regions that would produce certain grapes, you know, I feel like in the next couple of decades, I, I wonder if they'll still be able to produce um, certain grapes or certain varietals on the same land. And so you see a lot of like, um, even in the Finger Lakes region, which is kind of like an underrated area where they're um, producing diverse germaner and Riesling and kind of like in the cold climate style, um, you'll see more Greek varietals popping up, like even here in California. We're working on a project in Italy right now um, on converting a historic, um, historic palace into a hotel. And I've started exploring some of the smaller wine regions within Tuscany and came across a wine that I'd never heard of before um, called Vin Santo. And it takes a very, very long time to make. And I was stunned that the bottles that they released last year were actually the grapes were originally harvested in 1997. Mm -hmm. um, it takes wow. that long for them to go through the uh, sort of maturation process. Um, so just it's I think there's some fun things out there that people don't realize that are rare and unique. Um, yeah. That just could make something really interesting. So uh, for for Max, if you if your wine buyers ever struggling to find something different for duck and waffle, check out Vinsanto. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, dessert wine, very sweet. It's you know I have a I have a friend. He's a, a former colleague. He's a Slovenian, and and um, a, a close friend of his is a is a winemaker, and he brought me a bottle of wine that when I first started working at Duck and Waffle, that was very very cool. It was. Um, I, I don't I don't remember the exact specifics on it, but they they it was a, a sparkling wine that they um, aged under the sea, a hundred meters under the water, so it had like little barnacles and things growing on it. Mm -hmm. um, and apparently, the minerality of the seawater was supposed to be able to penetrate through the cork, you know, incorporating with the wine. And, um, I, obviously, I, I don't drink, so I didn't taste it, but uh, it, it's a very cool story. And the bottle looked amazing. I, I'm, I'm curious if you know it has validity or there's any good. So, Harrison, if you ever get a chance to try that, I, I would uh, I'd recommend it. I bet people oh, you said it's Slovenian. Sorry, say it again. You said like it's from Slo Slovenia or what? Yeah, Slovenia, yeah. I'm, okay. I think they do it. No, they, they must do it in other parts of the world. But because like, when I when I showed it to somebody I was working with, I can't remember. This was seven months ago. They they were familiar with the process. So, mm. you know, I don't know that it's super common, but it's not something that's it, it's something that gets done. I definitely haven't tried it before. I'm I'm interested now though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It sounds sounds unique. I'll have to go look it up after this. Um, so, so tell us, Max, I know you, again, you've, you've got your new menu coming out at Duck and Waffle. Is there a particular dish that you're really excited for people to, uh, to try? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, this is a very small menu change. We're only, we're only updating three menu items this time around. Um, you know, but 
we've got an amazing duck breast carpaccio with a truffle butter and burnt chimichurri, crispy shallots, and and micro coriander, which which I'm super excited about. And then and then uh, we've got a very classic cacio pepe, but it is actually a cacio pepe filled ravioli um, that is then served with a cacio pepe sauce. So it's like double double cheese and pepper in your face. Very very um, packed with flavor um yeah so but but i i I've, I've really been enjoying lately you know i've been getting a lot of the guys on the team i've been i've been trying to help foster some creativity amongst these younger guys in my team and uh you know some of the ideas that they're coming up with and and the ideas that they're helping me come up with have been really fun you know we just made a really nice smoked salmon fish cake with a you know green garlic velouté burnt burnt tomato ketchup and tartar sauce and you know just it's it's fun it's fun to just play around be creative see what works see what doesn't you know how to tweak it and where's the salt where's the acid where's the fat where's the heat so sounds delicious i'm i'm it's almost lunchtime here in la so now i'm uh, (laughs) focusing on that um, well, you know, we're sort of coming towards the end of our time here. And I really want to A, thank you guys for, for participating. I'm going to start with Harrison here. What's one thought, Harrison, for folks who are dealing with beverages um, in the industry right now? What's one sort of takeaway you'd like to leave them with? I would say, you know, as, as a consumer, as someone who's interested in wine, uh, just be experimental. Uh, drink more wine. I always say just drink more wine because the more the more that you experience, um, the more that your palate will develop. Um, and then like even I, I was interested even with what Max was saying about how he's developing his menu uh, for the spring uh, and how that looks with you know the offerings they offer for wine um and cocktails and how that pairs well with like the relationship between what's on the food menu and what's on their beverage menu but yeah drink more wine experience more wine uh, develop your palate don't be afraid afraid to try uh, different things experiencing food and wine together um is an experience i think that also drives people's passions to consume more and drink um enjoy food so yeah Great. Appreciate it. And, and Max, any closing thoughts from you on the culinary scene for our, our listeners and any uh, last takeaways? I would say just be kind, support, support, support your local business and, and, and uh, you know, be understanding that a lot of people are, are supporting their livelihoods with this industry and um, is a very difficult time for most restaurants out there. So, you know, try to be a little bit understanding and, you know, your server might be waiting on a lot of tables and the chefs in the kitchen might be very short staffed and not have someone washing dishes. And, you know, it's, it's, it's tough right now. So just, just be understanding and, and support the business and, you know, yeah. Well, I appreciate it. Gentlemen, you know, and thank you listeners. Um, you know, you tuned in here with Chris Henry, Maxwell Trahagen, and Harrison Hinton Harden. Um, this has been another episode of Next Gen and Lodging as part of Hotel News Now. And uh, we appreciate uh, everybody tuning in. And thank you both for uh, participating. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hotel News Now Podcast Network. 
Make sure to subscribe on Apple or Spotify and visit hotelnewsnow.com for more hospitality industry news.